You're listening to Work in Progress. I'm Ramona Schindelheim, Editor-in-Chief of Working Nation. Work in Progress explores the rapidly changing workplace through conversations with innovators, educators, and decision-makers, people with solutions to today's workforce challenges. The world's biggest tech event, CES, is underway in Las Vegas this week. More than 130,000 people are here to look at the latest breakthroughs and innovations in technology, and Working Nation is here to look at how this new tech is changing the way we work. I'm joined by Gary Shapiro, President and CEO of the Consumer Technology Association, the producer of CES. Gary, welcome back to the podcast. I am so honored and pleased to be here with you in Las Vegas. Let's talk a bit how big this has gotten. This is crazy. I, I was looking at some numbers, and it says the first CES was in 1967 with just 250 exhibitors. How big are you now? We will be over 4,000 exhibitors by the time the show closes. We will have up to 130,000 people. We really don't know. And what we do is we have a guesstimate at the end of the show based on our verified registration. And also then we have an audit, which is independent, which we think every trade show should do. But we're one of the few shows in the U.S. that does that. And we don't count everyone every day the way some shows do. We don't count people when they walk in and out of the hall the way some shows do. So our numbers are extremely conservative and we're about as honest as we can be. What kind of exhibitors are you seeing? You know, CES has been, I guess it started as a consumer show, but it seems that you've really shifted over the past decade or more to business oriented. It came from the word consumer electronics, the CES name. And certainly that's what we started out. We were never open to consumers. There was consumer products. Now we estimated that about 30 to 40% of what's going on is business to business. You know, when you have companies like Hyundai uh, Construction and John Deere and Intel and others, Qualcomm, uh, these are companies that sell to businesses generally. And that's changed because what's happened is that every company with any aspiration has become a technology company. But to be a technology company, you need to be able to partner with other technology companies because no company, no company does everything itself or can do everything itself. So you have to, in a sense, have relationships. And what we've tried to do with CES is to position it as an event where relationships will occur between the most innovative companies and people in the world. You have manufacturers, as you mentioned, you have automotive. I think in the hall we're set up in North Hall, you have healthcare as well. So all of these systems, all of these companies, as you said, there's now a tech component to it. How big this year is AI? I mean, we talked about it on the last podcast we did in January of last year. And so how big is AI? How big has it grown? You know, it's a hard to measure thing because AI, we estimate, will be in up to a majority of the, the products and the companies are showing. They'll use the phrase AI. AI is the buzzword for CES of 2024, no question about it. But when you walk the halls of the exhibit facilities, you could see it in some places, but not in others. It depends where you're going. You mentioned the auto and mobility companies. They've taken up a lot of space. And obviously, a self-driving car has been using AI for a while. Autonomous vehicles are, are a big deal. So AI has been part of that. Even when we've flown in planes to get to Las Vegas, 
most of that 95% of that trip is run by AI with a human overseer, basically. So it's uh, AI has been around for a while, but it's definitely the buzzword of CES 2024. I like that you put that in perspective too, because I try to use that perspective when I talk to people and say, AI is not new. We have been using it in different forms, in different products in our lives for a long time. I think the chat GPT became a ubiquitous phrase, a ubiquitous term, and it just got everybody thinking a little bit more about it. And some people are afraid of it. Some are afraid that it's going to hurt them, hurt their business. Sure. I mean, what's changed in the last year or so is that this generative AI has come along with ChatGPT available to anyone who wants to download it. And now there's some other competitors out there. And it basically could create things and learn from them based on feedback, which is which I think is a good thing. And certainly 99.99% of the uses of this learning AI, generative AI, is such that it'd be very positive. I mean, just you could take a category like self-driving, which we've mentioned, it'll save lives. No question about it. It'll save hundreds of thousands, if not millions of injuries as it continues to be deployed in different ways. You think about healthcare, where you have so much opportunity there. You know, the uh, in the United States, the healthcare legislation or law that Obamacare, as it's called, the President Obama pushed so heavily, was the promise of Obamacare has not been realized in the sense of getting those electronic medical records. I mean, certainly the payments and who gets healthcare, I'm not, that's not my issue. But taking the information from patients who are treated a certain way and extending that out, that has not been realized to learn from how patients are treated based on so many different characteristics of that specific patient from their their DNA to their race, sex, age, you name all the things we're not supposed to consider really have to be considered in healthcare because that's where the correlations come from. And it could be where they live, what they eat, what their family history is. And if you take all that information and do something with it, which AI can and should and will do someday, then you could actually figure out which treatments work in what ways, because the variety of treatments out there is almost infinite. But doctors often do what they're used to doing. And the research that gets published in medical journals is based on significant findings, not insignificant findings. And it's often, to be honest with you, it's, it's channeled by the drug companies who will tweak a drug just to keep the patent going. And then say, let's treat that drug with this drug. And that's how the studies are done. It's kind of surprising when you get close to it. I'm saying this because my wife's a surgeon. I go to a lot of medical conferences. I talk to a tremendous number of doctors. And I don't think there's a lot of disagreement over what I'm saying. It's just, uh, it's unfortunate, but we have so far to go in healthcare to extend lives, to save lives, to have better lives. And because a lot of conditions are treatable, but it's just, you know, sometimes there's a one size fits all for patients. It's what the doctor learned of. The promise of AI to me is absolutely huge in so many different ways. You know, the you brought up healthcare, and I noticed that you had a lot of cybersecurity. I think you have the head of NSA is going to be there this week at uh, CES 2024. So cybersecurity and so protecting that data is very important as well. Do you think AI can help with that? Oh, sure. You know, you build a better mousetrap, you get smarter mice. And the cybersecurity is, is it's not going to go away for as an issue, as a problem, as a challenge, as an opportunity for years and years and years and years. And that's something that, um, you know, we're trying to do our part in as an organization. You know, the CES is run by the nonprofit Consumer Technology Association. And, and we've partnered with uh, NIST, National Institute of Standards and Technology. And we're creating like a 
I don't want to call it good housekeeping because they're their own, but a label that's available for products you know, that meets basic cybersecurity safeguards. You know, like not defaulting to zero, things like that, or ABCD. There's opportunities that people have to protect their, their own products and data. And there's some standards that the government's interested in setting. We've been working with the White House and many, many, many other groups to help champion this concept of something like whether it's the EPA sticker you see on your, your cars for gas mileage or your energy usage by your appliances, the uh, Energy Star program, which most of the products are from consumer technology. But this would be for cybersecurity. So it's an issue. You'll increasingly see that talked about at CES. But in the bigger sense, you know, everyone, whether consumers or businesses or people working from their homes, uh, you have to deal with cybersecurity. And we deal with that as an organization. And we certainly you know, do everything we can. But, you know, we still feel vulnerable like everyone else does. You know, I also noticed that there's a lot of talk around in a lot of technology around sustainability, food security, agriculture. So those seem like key issues affecting our lives and the way we, you know, live them. What what can you tell me about what some of the sustainability or the food security technology that's out there that we should know about? Well, certainly if, if AI is the overall theme of the show, uh, sustainability is the overlay on it all, the entire show. And sustainability, when we talked over a year ago, we said we were partnering with the United Nations to push their human securities. And the, the sustainability goals are aimed at governments, and there's many of them, a couple of dozen. Last year when we spoke, there was only seven basically human securities. They have to do with environmental security, the right to clean air and clean water, health security, the right to health care, food security, the right to security and that you shouldn't be hungry as a human being, political security, community security. And at our request, the United Nations added a new one, which is access to technologies and security. Technology is so important in solving the most fundamental human problems that the United Nations has now recognized that there's a new human security involved access to technology. So if you look at some of the things around the show, and a lot of our exhibitors are very excited about this, is that you could identify with the different securities in terms of what your solutions are for human beings. Certainly you mentioned healthcare is one of them. It's a huge one that we see the opportunity of technology. There's other ones involving food, uh, whether it's locally grown food or uh, sustainability food, or actually, I noticed increasing number of companies showing how food can be grown in your own house as well as other forms of human security. The healthcare one, to, to come back to that just for a second, that's one where in the United States, we face a challenge that we are all growing older. Demographically, the percentage of the population that's older is much higher. We're living longer. We have more addressable medical needs. But at the same time, Congress has mandated that we limit the number of doctors we train in the United States to what a, a number was almost uh, three decades ago. So all those problems, and we have a limited number of doctors. Now, we definitely import some doctors. That's what we do. That helps us. I'm not sure it helps the countries they're coming from. But it's something that where we have a shortage of nurses and other technicians in healthcare as well. So the answer that's quickly the marketplace is providing is all sorts of technology for remote monitoring, for telehealth, for um, things like diabetics who... One, rather than having intrusive blood tests, there's all sorts of ways now with pulse oximeters and other things which you can look at the blood without taking a blood sample with just devices or stickers on the body. You could look at your obviously heartbeat and cardio and blood pressure. There's so many different sensors out there that are relatively low cost 
and smart people are putting them together in really incredible ways that it's changing the nature of healthcare and technology, uh, which is really important. We've already mentioned that the technology is changing our lives pretty rapidly and it continues to change it. And most jobs have some tech aspect to it now. So that tech, that access to technology seems like a key security that we should have in order to be able to participate and thrive in the uh, workforce. Absolutely. And this is something where those of us that are qualified for AARP membership are probably not as good as our children or our grandchildren, which it just comes natural to me. I mean, even in my position where, you know, my son threatens to block, my 15-year-old son threatens to blackmail me and tell the world that I don't know what I'm doing when it comes to technology because I offer ask him for assistance there. Now that I've gotten it out publicly, I can no longer be blackmailed by him. And I'll tell him I said that. It's not that I'm a technological idiot. I'm just over a certain age. I mean, last night my son asked why I like reading on paper. And I do. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I read a lot of electronic. I'm in front of screens, you know, a lot of the time. But when it comes to my pleasure reading, as much as I love the Kindle and the opportunities and the ability to not carry the heavy paper around and the dead trees, as some people say, there's something about the randomness you could find and how you could go through things and discover things that are still better. And I am, I'm an analog person living in a digital world in a job that's very digitally based, I guess. <laughs> I am a pencil person, pencil on paper. I take my best notes that way as opposed to typing them on the computer. And I use a computer all the time. We're doing this via our computer right this second. And I do this all the time, but I do like that feel. I am an analog person too in a digital world. Except look, when, when we went from LPs to CDs like that, I was younger then and I was just starting. That's a fascination to CES when I saw these this new thing called the CD player. I don't go along with people who say analog's better with the hum and the clicks and the pops of the records. And certainly I spent a significant number of years working to get us where we are as a nation to HDTV, which is the, the crispness of the picture I just adore. Yeah. I'm very proud of that. I'm so proud of that that when I die, I want to have a 16 by 9 aspect ratio tombstone, you know, just to <laughs> lay it out in HDTV format. But then, you know, things come along which weren't that great, like 3D television, which I couldn't get myself to get behind because I felt it was just a overhyped feature, not a whole new category. And you know, there was that one year I was at CES, I remember I, I decided I told my board that I couldn't do it, and I buried myself in writing a book and talking about the book. Uh, and that was something that was kind of a mass. Some of the Asian companies definitely had a massive groupthink on that one, which I didn't quite understand. And I had the opportunity to address actually the leadership of Sony at one point. And I laid it out for them and they, they were upset with me. Um, <laughs> there were advantages to 3D. My wife, as an ophthalmologist, was pointing them out to the same group I was talking to. Of We spent a lot of time in front of screens, so it exercises our eyes. It's good for stroke recovery. It's, it helps avoid nearsightedness. Yeah. Anyway, bottom line, it was 3D television was one of the great losers of all time. It's like up there where they track cassettes. But So some things, just because they're new, doesn't mean they're better. But when it comes to things like self-driving cars, which will save lives. I mean, you can't just argue with that at all. And for most people, you don't need to know how this stuff works. Remember, I started out at my job the first week I was with the association a zillion years ago, and I started attending the standards meeting with all the engineers. I understood kind of what they were talking about. All you have to understand is that algorithm is a you know, number, but generally you don't have to know about it. And the, the better products, and that's how Apple made a lot of money, obviously, was they make things simple. So you humans don't have to know how to 
figure it out. It has to be simple. I think that actually goes to an, an argument that some people who are fearful of technology say, it's going to change. I need to know so much to be able to do my job in the future. But I always say to people, think about what you do on a day-to-day basis. Use your phone. That's complex technology that you do not need to know how to make it work. You just need to know how to apply it. And so in the workforce, I think that is one of the things that is useful. We need a lot of people who can do data science and they can do cybersecurity, which is just preventing you know, people to access computers. IT people do it all the time already. So it's not learning to be that engineer unless you want to be an engineer, but a lot of the tech jobs now just take applications. Absolutely. Every employee of any organization should know not to click on hyperlinks that they are not 100% comfortable with, or if it's too good to be true, it usually is. So you just have to do it. And, and, you know, our IT people, they send out fake ones just to test us. And it's a matter of pride that we don't click a lot because it, it could, you know, we've seen how it could bring down hospital systems and no matter what organization, charitable, it just doesn't matter. The people who do this are just ruthless and they don't care. And that's a challenge as a society. It's just not the U.S. government. Everyone has to get together and figure this one out because it's, it's and that's one of the downsides of a great uh, invention was, uh, you know, basically cyber currency allows that to be paid and done without any tracing. While the traditional analog banking system allowed everything to be traced. And it's, so there, there's pros and cons of all these new technologies, but it's um, something if you're, in, if you're working or if you're working at home, the life has changed in just the, you know, since COVID began that way, that people have gotten very comfortable working at home. I know there's still a debate going on, different companies forcing people back to work, but it's also a race for good employees. So those companies that are willing to let people work from home more have a greater variety of employees, plus outside. The issue becomes, and this is where CES actually comes in that I just want to touch on for a second, is that what CES does is allows people to get together on a face-to-face basis. And although I'm the cheerleader for the tech industry, I'm passionate that you have to do that to have relationships. You know, share share a cup of coffee or a drink or a meal. Meet someone randomly on a, one of the buses around CES. It's taking people around. Walk around a hall and go where the startup area is, Eureka Park, and discover a company, a startup, and, and give them some advice or an idea. It's just those kind of things which make the CES to me so exciting. So I am a cheerleader for the tech industry, but I'm also a cheerleader for face-to-face meetings directly. It's uh, very important. As we kind of wrap this up, is there anything that you would like to tell people to be on the lookout for? You know, again, we talked about AI being kind of the hot thing again this year, and it was in 2023. Is there something around the corner that we should be keeping our eye on? If I knew, I'd make a lot of money on it, but I don't. Um, But what I do, having been a young reader of all the science fiction I could get my hands on and now seeing some of it coming true, I think the the long-term future potential is with combining AI and robotics, which is really what a self-driving car is. But to take that a much step further, there'll be all sorts of devices and things which provide service and mobility. They'll remove some of the horrible jobs of society 
that are perhaps more dangerous. I mean, clearly, you know, started out years ago with bomb disposal units. Why should a human sacrifice their lives, and I hope they're saving others, but their, or their limbs, when a machine could do a lot of that, perhaps with greater accuracy? And the robotics is moving along very quickly. We're starting to see it. Um, Delta Airlines CEO Ed Bastian spoke at CES right before COVID and uh, showed about many things that Delta was doing to position themselves as a high-tech airline. But one of the things you can't really see, which is how they're helping their baggage handlers magnify their strength with all the, the devices they wear, basically, and they don't necessarily get hurt. Now it's impressive to me. And as Delta celebrates its 100th anniversary in 2025, I look to hearing, forward to hearing more about what they're doing. But in every area of endeavor where people are getting hurt or injured or they're getting sick, which is avoidable. I think we have an opportunity there with AI. I mean, I was talking to the senior executive for one of the major seat company in the world. They make seats and cars and buses and snowcats and caterpillars and all things like that. And she was telling me about how, you know, they're looking at seat detecting your health and letting you know that if you could do certain things. So you combine these technologies in incredible ways and the, the future for eliminating human suffering, improving the human condition, solving fundamental global problems with technology is absolutely amazing. And then, of course, some of the business processes that we all deal with on our jobs, those can be made more efficient with AI and other things. And that we'll see. So a lot of the things we consider a hindrance. You know, if you think about the technologies have done, whether they helped us or just innovation or even going back to the tanning of fire so you could cook food or you could warm a home, you know, there's downsides to them. You know, fires burn down things they could use as weapons. Same thing with wheels and automobiles and planes. I mean, every invention of mankind has a good side and a bad side. It's how we choose to use them as humans, which matters. But that doesn't mean they should be stopped going forward. Certainly governments have a huge role to play. Obviously, uh, just restricting the nuclear bomb, for example, is one thing I want governments to focus on and have agreements on and, and, and limit. But there are other things, you know, which are, they're positive and they can't be stopped. Sometimes, for example, like I think Europe's, like, for example, they've really gone heavy on privacy all the time. It's hurt their ability to innovate. Chinese have gone the other way totally. No real concept of privacy. Everyone gets a social ranking based on what websites they visit, whether they jaywalk, whether they pay bills. That social ranking determines whether they could fly or travel or go to hotels or even where they're positioned on a dating website. So they've gone the other direction, but their ability to take massive amounts of data and do what they want with it, wow, it's, it's scary because they're, they will be ahead of us in AI in many different ways because of their lack of concern about privacy. So when I think of the United States, I want us to be like Goldilocks, you know, just have the porridge that's right in the middle, resolve some of these issues. People will parade, all these horrible things will happen. But the reality is we need to advance as a species to improve the human condition. And we have to have the tools to do it. And the government's job is to create the guardrails so companies know what they can do this legal and know what they can't do this legal. And so we can all work together to make it a better world. Thank you for those wise words. I, I agree with you 100%. You got to have the guardrails in place. Thank you, Gary. Thank you so much for joining the Work in Progress podcast. And I look forward to seeing you around the show. Thank you very much. And uh, stay healthy, drink plenty of water, and wear comfortable shoes as you see the show. I've been speaking with Gary Shapiro, President and CEO of the Consumer Technology Association. I'm Ramona Schindelheim, Editor-in-Chief of Working Nation. Thank you very much for listening.